Lord, this morning we are grateful to you that we get together and sing your praises. And so much of what we sing is either directly out of Scripture or consistent with the doctrines that we hold precious. And they drive us to you. And we love to be driven to you. In every season of life, Lord, you have been good to us. In every season of this church, your work has been marvelous. And you are still building your church. All of these 2,000 years after Paul's letter was written about how he longed to visit one particular church in Rome. Father, we praise you that you answered his prayers not the way perhaps he intended. Lord, we see in him a love for your church, and we see a love for your gospel. And so we praise you, Father. I pray that as we go through Romans, that the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul will become our heartbeat, that the things we value the most will be the things that he valued most. And Father, I pray that you would make us not more like Paul, but more like the Jesus who is in Paul. We need your grace now, Father, as we hear from the Apostle Paul and the exhortations that I will deliver from it. I pray, Father, that you would speak to my heart first and change me. And Lord, that you would be glorified by the faithful ministry of your word this morning. And we give you thanks for the privilege of it in Jesus' name. Amen. The most important thing in the world today, the most important need, is God's salvation. But how will they receive it if the gospel is not boldly proclaimed? You can just stay seated this morning for the scripture reading. It's going to be fairly short, but it really sets up uh, the rest of the message because a good chunk of this is the entire message. I'll give you a little context, and then we'll hit it. Here we are, beginning with verse 14. The main text this morning is verse 16, but from 14 it says, Paul writes, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Today I want to pick up where we left off last time. You'll remember that Paul was writing a letter to the church of Rome, telling them that he really wants to visit them. He had never met them before as a church body. He knew some of them, as is evident in in, in, uh, chapter 16, where he names uh, 28 of them that he was already acquainted with. He longs to visit them, and he has been brokenhearted over the fact that he hasn't been able to get there. He kept getting blocked. Either the Lord was keeping him, of course, in in his sovereign providence. That's always the case. Whatever happens, it happens by his will. 
But there were other situations and other influences that kept him from coming. And so he hated the fact that he hadn't seen them yet. And he wanted to promise them that he would get there as soon as possible. And aside from the pleasure of fellowshipping with them and getting to know them, he wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. In fact, verse 14, he makes it clear that it wasn't merely a desire to preach. It wasn't merely a desire to preach. It was an obligation. In fact, your text may say he considered himself a debtor. I want to talk to you today about Paul's shameless preaching of the gospel And then I want to begin thinking, and and notice intentionally the word begin thinking. We're not going to be able to finish this verse today. But I want us to begin thinking about the three truths that kept Paul motivated to preach the gospel everywhere with little regard for for the hardships that he might experience. But first, let's consider Paul's shameless preaching of the gospel, his shameless preaching of the gospel. Like Moses, long before him, who after receiving the revelation from God on the mountain was obligated or owed a debt to the people of Israel, so Paul, after receiving from Christ the revelation of the gospel, was obligated from the heart to proclaim it. In Paul's case, however, it wasn't merely a message for his fellow Jews as it was at Sinai. Paul considered himself a debtor not only to the Jews, but to Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish, he says. It mattered not whether, he was, whether, whether the person he was preaching to or the people were educated or uneducated. In fact, the word barbarian uh, finds its origin in uh, the two diphthongs in the beginning of the word barbarian, barbar, because to them that's that's how the foreigner sounded, barbar, 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 barbar. So they called them barbarians. And but not only the barbarians, but the wise and the foolish. You see, Paul's trying to cover all the bases. He wants to preach to everyone and anyone who will listen. Paul considered himself a debtor to these men and women. Whether they were foreigners of another tongue or whether they were the folks next door, he was a debtor to them all. He was a debtor to them all, and he was, look at verse 15, he was eager to fulfill that debt, to pay that debt And the way he could pay the debt, the only way to pay his debt to them was to preach the gospel. In fact, Paul communicated the same sense of obligation when he wrote to the church in Corinth. And he said these words in 1 Corinthians 9.16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. For... Of necessity, it is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You know what woe is? It's not what you say to your horse when you're trying to write him in. Woe is calling down a curse. Like when Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees. And when Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am undone. Paul is using the same 
the same term to, to call down a curse upon his head if he doesn't preach the gospel. And yet, as you know, Paul faced significant obstacles to his mission of preaching the gospel to everyone, to everyone. His labor for the Lord was often a dangerous undertaking. I make mention of this every week. Sometimes he got in trouble with the authorities. Sometimes he got thrown in jail. Sometimes his friends turned his backs on, their backs on them. Sometimes riots broke out. One time a group of people came, they became so angry with him that they took him outside the city and they stoned him and left him for dead. Wherever Paul traveled, he experienced various degrees of pressure, listen carefully, pressure to be ashamed of the gospel, pressure to stop speaking that name, pressure to stop proclaiming what Jesus had given him to proclaim. His message was not one that attracted the curious. It wasn't a message about a new clever philosophy. It, if it had been, people would have flocked to him in droves, especially when he was in Athens. It wasn't a message about the state of government in Rome. We're called to fundamentally change the empire toward social and economic equality. If it were, the privileged, the, the underprivileged hordes would have flocked to him for that reason. His message wasn't a promise of health and wealth and prosperity. Paul's message wasn't like that at all. Rather, his message was that in Israel, in Israel, a common carpenter had been found to be the son of God. It was a message declaring that sins can be forgiven by faith in the life and death of a crucified Messiah. Think about it. The man who claimed to be the Son of God was crucified. And he died on a Roman cross as, a, as an ordinary criminal that most people walking by would have paid no attention to. Just another dying man on a cross. I mean, who would ever believe such a message? That through a man like this, eternal salvation could be yours by grace through faith. Who would ever believe that? One author writes, Paul preached a shameless, Paul preached a shameful message. He preached it shamelessly, but it was a shameful message when he preached of Jesus on the cross, being crucified was a degrading insult. And the idea of worshiping someone who had been crucified was absolutely unimaginable. Of course, we don't see people being crucified now, as Paul's listeners did back in the first century, so its impact on us is somewhat lost. But Paul knew, Paul knew what he was up against. He wrote, for the message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For Jews request or demand signs and Greeks seek after wisdom, 
but we preach Christ, say it with me, crucified. We preach Christ crucified. I think I've told you this before, but over, when I go over to the lands of Russia, if I go to an older church, on the front of their podium it will say, we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. This has always been the anthem of the church. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, utter foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness. Foolishness here is moria, from which we get the word moron. People who believe that are morons. No wonder people became angry with him. And humanly speaking, it would have seemed perfectly reasonable if, if Paul would just quit. I mean, it's a hard life. And isn't that what most would-be evangelists do? They preach for a little while, it's hard, nobody's listening, nobody's obeying the gospel. And so they just quit. Paul never quit. Paul never quit. The constitution of that man was unbelievable. Paul, however, never capitulated to those pressures. He tells us back in Romans 1.16, our verse for this morning, that despite the hardships, he was, listen carefully, not ashamed of the gospel. He was not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, though his fellow Jews saw it as a stumbling block to them. Not ashamed, though the word of the cross was foolishness to those who were perishing. When Paul says, I am not ashamed, he's actually using a, a kind of figure of speech that is intended to communicate the opposite of what it says. If you are, if you go into, well, let's say if, if I go into my house while my wife is gone and, and clean that, that wood floor of ours that always just seems dirty when the sun shines on it, and I get it really, really clean, and she comes home and she would say, that's not bad. What does that mean? It's not bad. I mean, you could take offense at that. I mean, if you, if you thought about it literally, well, it's not bad. I mean, it could be better, but it's not bad. But what she would really be saying is, that's really good. It's really good. We do this in a lot of different ways, but here's Paul doing it. I am not ashamed. What he's really saying is, I am, I am stoked about the gospel. I am proud of the gospel. You can't keep me from talking about the gospel. When my mouth opens, I'm talking about Jesus. When I have an opportunity to speak with someone I don't know, I'm going to talk about Jesus. When I'm with the church, I'm talking about Jesus. I want to know if the people I'm going to church with know and love Jesus. Paul was a shameless preacher of the gospel, and throughout church history, God has always had choice men whose preaching was boldly unashamed, and women too. Not as preachers, but 
as faithful servants of the gospel. We think of men like John Huss and William Tyndall, Martin Luther, John Calvin, George Whitfield, just to name a few. Those fiery preachers who faced all kinds of things. And Whitfield, you know, he would, when he went to Ireland, which was predominantly Catholic and still is, uh, they got upset with him. They would throw rocks at him, but an unusual thing uh, there in terms of persecution, they would also throw dead cats at him. what you get for reading biography. You learn <laughs> trivia that nobody cares about, but <laughs> things that are probably not appropriate to share from the pulpit, but leave it to me. I also think of more modern folk who possess that same spirit. I think of Richard Verbrand, who some of you have never heard of. If you've ever seen the, the magazine called um, uh, Oh, it's the martyr one, uh, Voice of the Martyrs. He was the one who started it because he was almost a martyr. Uh, he was a faithful preacher of Jesus in Romania. When Joseph Stalin was the ruling murderous dictator in the 1940s and early 50s, at one point in his story, which you can read in his book called Tortured for Christ, I recommend you do, at one point in his story, Richard and his wife, Sabina, went to a congress of Joseph Stalin. He was a registered preacher, so he had to be there. So all of the religious leaders in Romania had to be at this congress. And so there he was. 4,000 religious leaders in Romania met. They, and so Richard Verbrand and his wife, Sabina, sat down and listened to one priest after another pastor stand and proclaim that communism and Christianity are fundamentally the same. Finally, Richard's wife, Sabina, could take it no longer. Richard's, Richard writes, My wife and I were present at the Congress. My wife sat near me and told me, Richard, stand up and wash away the shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to my wife, if I do, you lose your husband. To which she responded, I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. Don't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it finally came time for Verbrand to give his speech at the Congress, and he did. And it was unlike any of the other speeches that were given. And as soon as he was done, he was arrested, handcuffed, taken off to a prison camp, mistreated, and tortured mercilessly for years. Today, there were probably men who were made of such steel, but the reality is, even in these changing times, it's still, it's still relatively safe for us. Perhaps we have a few more years of freedom we're living in that freedom right now. In our society, it's still rather safe to talk to people, even strangers, about Jesus. And yet, fear tends to be the dominant reason that we shy away from sharing the gospel. And what are we afraid of? Why are we afraid to speak for Christ and proclaim the gospel to our friends and our neighbors? I suspect it's due to the reality that many times 
the guy that we hear being interviewed on radio or on TV, has, he kind of has the microphone at college debates on campus. He's usually an outspoken, hostile atheist. But as Glenn Shrivener says, the guy with the mic doesn't speak for the room. The guy with the mic doesn't speak for everyone in the room. And just because he's loud, he's been given a platform, it doesn't mean that everyone agrees with him. And I have found that the vast majority of people that I speak with about Christ are generally polite, even if they don't want to talk. They generally will say, no, thank you. <gasps> Persecution. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't feel good when people turn you away. You're kind of laying yourself out there. Why would we be afraid of that? Most people are polite. Many of them seem to be genuinely interested in what I have to say or what you have to say. The point is, there's a reason. There's a reason for, there's no reason for any of us to be ashamed of the gospel. Unfortunately, too many of us are. One of the commentators that I read this week said, um, the problem with nice people, he said this very graciously, the problem with nice people is they tend to be cowards. Unfortunately, too many of us are that way. But this betrays in us what John Piper refers to as misplaced shame. Misplaced shame. The Bible makes very clear. Piper writes this that there is a shame we ought to have and a shame we ought not to have. We might call one misplaced shame and the other well-placed shame. Misplaced shame is a kind of shame you feel when there is no good reason to feel it. Biblically, that means that the thing you feel ashamed of is not dishonoring to God. If it were, then you should be ashamed. And that brings us to the second well-placed shame, on the other hand, is the shame we feel when there is good reason to feel it. Biblically, that means we feel ashamed of something because our involvement in it is dishonoring to God. And we ought to feel shame when we have a hand in bringing dishonor to the Lord by our attitudes, by our actions, by our entertainment choices, by the things that we choose to do or choose not to do. For example, we should be ashamed of our sin. Unfortunately, in, in our land, what has always been called sin is, is now the new morality. It's the new righteousness. And like it or not, that can creep into the church and does. We should be ashamed of our sin. We should be ashamed when our, our nation supports abortion but we should not be ashamed of the gospel. This is misplaced shame when we are ashamed of the gospel. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul scolds his young protege, I think graciously, but directly. He says this, Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
I, I take that to mean in this context, he's talking about sharing the gospel, being faithful with the gospel. And the self-control probably is whatever emotions you're feeling right now, don't let them rule you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of, of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We ought not feel shame for the gospel of Christ. Christ is honored when we speak well of him, and he is dishonored when we are fearfully silent. Therefore, Jesus warns in Matthew 8, 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in, his, in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. That's sobering, isn't it? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Always shameless as a preacher of the gospel. And while it's true that only a few are called to preach, all of us should be willing and eager to speak with others about the gospel of Jesus. But how does one keep himself motivated? How did Paul keep himself motivated and, and not allow himself to get discouraged as he shared with people and and so often they responded badly because there are people that God is sending you to that don't want to hear what you have to say. How do you stay motivated? Well, Paul tells us how he stayed motivated. The fact that he was not ashamed of the gospel was owing to three truths, at least in this text, that, that he believed with every fiber of his being. And I can't help but believe that if we would embrace these three truths, we would be more motivated to minister the gospel, or at least less afraid to share the gospel to the people we know. What are those three truths? Well, and they're right here in the text. Number one, the limitless power of the gospel. The reason Paul's not ashamed, he says, is it is because the gospel is the power. Number two, the second truth, the boundless reach of the gospel. That is, it is for all who believe. And thirdly, the effortless qualification of the gospel. It is by grace. It is by grace. Let's just spend a few minutes on the first one, and then I am sure we will be out of time. The limitless power of the gospel. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For, so here's his reason why he's not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel because, or for, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's no shame in that. I mean, next to Christ himself, the gospel is the most precious treasure in the cosmos. And we carry it about in us in jars of clay, these pots, these bodies of ours, crack pots though some of us may be. We carry the treasure of the gospel. 
And Paul believed that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In other words, the gospel is the means by which God exerts his power to save. In chapter 10, Paul will ask a series of rhetorical questions that you are no doubt very familiar with. He says this, question number one, how then will they call upon, how long, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So you see, my friend, Paul didn't believe, after all, in a wider mercy theology. He didn't believe that people who don't have ready access to the gospel would be saved based on their sincerity to the spiritual light that they had, no matter how Christless and adulterous, idolatrous that religion may be. And many people believe that. Many people believe that. Many people who are now in uh, major denominations that are fading because of their abandonment of the Bible, many believe in that. How will they believe in whom they have not heard? Answer, they won't. How will they hear without a preacher? Answer, they won't. Do you now understand why Paul wanted to go to Spain? I mean, they're never going to hear if I don't go. Church in Rome, send me. I'm coming to you as fast as I can. When I get there, make me a member and then make me a missionary and then fill my pockets full of money so I can go. How will they in Spain Trust in Christ, their only hope of salvation. If we don't go and preach this gospel, which is essential for salvation. That's why Paul was attempting to reach the whole world, all the world that he knew. It's why this is the missionary call, right? I mean, given to us by example from the Apostle Paul. He was not ashamed of the gospel because it was and still is the only means of saving grace. The gospel is the only power that saves. Many evangelicals don't seem to believe that. They believe that to the common man, the gospel is offensive, embarrassing, unattractive. I mean, if you really want to make an impact on the world, then you have to offer something enticing to get them into your church. It's it's an attraction mentality. You're attracting people in, uh, to the church, attracting unbelievers into the church in hopes that once they're here, you can keep them here. And they do it with enticing things. They, they do it with, with drama and, and high-powered music and the promise of friendships and building relationships and having fun. And none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But Paul never did that. Jesus never did it. It was never about attracting a crowd. It was always about taking the gospel out. Listen, we have six days during the week. 
We have six days out there in the world. We have six days to engage with unbelievers and bring the gospel to bear on their lives. Yes, to help them, but the primary help is an eternal help. Sharing the gospel. Have you ever seen people out on Sunday and they're wearing T-shirts, they're out cleaning up parks and, and building houses or whatever, and they got a shirt on that says, um, I'm skipping church to be the church. Doesn't that sound slick? My question is, why not the other six days? Why do you have to do that on Sunday? It feels more righteous because going to church is just boring old going to church. But if this is the Lord's day, then we should be here. And when it's not the Lord's day, we should be out there. Nobody gets salvation apart from the only thing that has the power to deliver it, namely the unvarnished, undiluted message of the gospel of the crucified Christ. The salvation of sinners is not a light matter. It doesn't happen spontaneously or as a result of deep feelings of need. No, the only way anyone is genuinely saved is by the exertion of the same awesome power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. You can't manufacture that. A power that brings about the spiritual heart transplant the prophet Ezekiel promised would one day come. It's come. It is here. It is the spiritual heart transplant wherein God removes the heart of stone that is dead toward God and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a living heart that, listen carefully, that loves Jesus and his word. Show me a Christian who doesn't love Jesus and his word, and I will show you a Christian who is not a Christian. The gospel is a power that transforms. We talk about justification, and, and that's the next verse. We won't get there for a couple of weeks. But justification is where God declares you righteous. It's as, as if he writes it down in the leisure that, that all of your sin now belongs to Jesus, all of his righteousness belongs to you, and that is true. But salvation is more than just the paperwork. It's about transformation now. It's not just a promise. It's not just a covenant. It's not just a contract. The gospel has the power to transform. The only way one can be efficaciously called, redeemed, reconciled to God, and transformed is by the power of the gospel. And it must be proclaimed. You don't have to preach it. You can whisper it to the person next to you. You can sit beside their, beside their hospital bed and pray it in their hearing. That's why Paul never gave in to the pressure to tone it down or, or dilute it or make it easier to accept. No. He knew that the only message that had the power to save was the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And without that power... Without the power of God through the gospel, no one ever receives the positive and negative benefits of the gospel. The positive and negative benefits of the gospel. 
can I just share with you a few? I have a minute and 44 seconds left. Negatively, it rescues us from sin's guilt. Positively, it brings us God's righteousness. Negatively, it takes away our impurity. Positively, it gives us holiness. Negatively, it removes us from slavery to sin. Positively, it ushers us into freedom. Negatively, it removes our punishment. Positively, it fills us with blessedness and joy. Negatively, it removes our alienation from God forever. Positively, it brings us into fellowship with God. We are no longer enemies. Negatively, it removes the wrath of God. Positively, it brings the love of God, which is shed abroad in our hearts. That love that he wants us to comprehend, though it is incomprehensible. Negatively, it withholds everlasting death. Positively, it grants to us everlasting life with God forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so I say again, beloved, the most important thing, the most important need of our world today is God's salvation. But how will they receive it if the gospel is not boldly proclaimed? Lord, everyone in this room, if they are, I suppose every adult in this room, if they're honest with you and with themselves, has to confess that there have been times when we've all been cowards, ashamed of the gospel. Lord, we recognize the need to repent and believe. Father, I pray that you would raise up among this church men and women who are just ordinary people, never been to seminary, Bible school. They just love Jesus. But Father, fill them, fill them, fill their hearts with an overwhelming desire to share the gospel whenever there is an appropriate time. And when there's not an appropriate time, help them to figure out how to make one for your great glory and for our own great joy, we pray in Jesus' name.